you know, uh, thought that Bob was just leading me on by telling me it's going to be here this day, this day. And and uh, when I came and saw it, I was excited. He said, oh, you of little faith. So uh, glad to have the board. Is your mic on? He is now. Okay. So, but yeah, I'll still need a lot of help. But, okay, let's pick up in Deuteronomy 6. Deuteronomy 6. And we left off in that section from verses 4 through 9 uh, last week. We talked about, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. And this is stated by Jesus as the first and great commandment. Uh, but let's just read from 4 to 9. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our is our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. These words which I am commanding you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your sons. And you shall talk of them when you sit in the house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand. They shall be as frontals on your forehead. You shall write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates. Loving God with all we are, with all we have, all our heart, all our soul, all our mind, all our strength. And the conclusion of loving God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength is that we want to talk about it. How many things are there that you love that you don't want to talk about? Things that you really love, you enjoy speaking of them. And the most important people to whom to speak these words in a family are those that are living right there with you. Teach them diligently to your sons and talk of them, notice, when you sit, when you walk, when you lie down, when you rise up. Now, in most times of life, fit into one of those categories. And I think that is the point. These words and these commandments were the constant source of their reflection and the constant source of their conversation. Teach them diligently to your sons and talk of them when you sit in the house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down and rise up. And do all that you do to call attention to them. Bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be frontals on your forehead. Keep them before you. Uh, write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates. Because of these words in verses 8 and 9, the Jewish people wore things like phylacteries, little leather pouches that had passages tied in them to remind them of God's Word and to keep the Word of God before them. They are referenced by Jesus in Matthew 23 and verse 5. 
Now, I think sometimes we, they're also referenced in the Old Testament in, in Exodus chapter 13. I think because of Jesus' condemnation of them in Matthew 23 verse 5, some broaden their phylactery and lengthen the tassels of their garment. We inherently associate those things with hypocrisy. But, but that's not, that's not the right connection. They were doing it to call attention to themselves. God wants us to do it to call attention to His will. Was nothing wrong with them writing the word upon their forehead. There's nothing wrong with us posting verses on our refrigerator and upon our wall. Now, if we do it just to call attention to ourselves, we are doing wrong. But if we're doing it to remind ourselves of His Word, we're doing right. I know that there's another class at this time that's talking about parenting. But I would say, there's nothing more important about parenting than Deuteronomy 6, 4-9. through 9. Talk of the Word constantly. Let it be the source of... Of our conversation. I want to tell you one thing I've noticed over the years. I first noticed this about 15 years ago. And I went somewhere to um, a meeting. And the man wanted, said, let's go visit my grandson. And he has, he's not faithful and we need to encourage him to get right with the Lord. And, 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 and I appreciate the grandfather. I'm not criticizing the grandfather. But it was one thing fascinating to me. He had forsaken the Lord. He wasn't hostile. But he had forsaken the Lord. But he still liked the same sports team that he grew up liking in that house. Have we done a better job of communicating our allegiance to certain athletic teams than we have communicating our allegiance to Jesus? And I looked for that after that. And I noticed it time after time. Let's make sure the allegiance that we're emphasizing Above all, is allegiance to Him. He is our priority. A moment ago I saw a hand up, and I, and I wasn't finished with the thought. Okay. Um, let's look at verse 10. It shall come about... When the Lord your God brings you into the land, which he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give you great and splendid cities, which you did not build, houses full of all good things, which you did not fill, hewn cisterns, which you did not dig, vineyards and olive trees, which you did not plant, and you shall eat... And be satisfied. Then watch yourselves that you do not forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. 
You shall fear only the Lord your God, and you shall worship Him and swear by His name. And you shall not follow other gods, any of the gods of the peoples who surround you. For the Lord your God in the midst of you is a jealous God. Otherwise the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you, and He will wipe you off from the face of the earth. We'll stop there just a moment couple of phrases that we will see repeatedly in the book of Deuteronomy. It's not the first time we've encountered them, but in Deuteronomy 6.10, the land which the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The land the Lord swore to you, the land the Lord gave to you. Here he mentions the forefathers, but but the land he, he promised your forefathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And then in 6 verse 12, do not forget the Lord who brought you out from the land of Egypt out of the house of slavery. Sometime I want to read the book of Deuteronomy with the express purpose of counting up the number of times those phrases are used. Those, Those phrases... Are, are never forgotten in this book. The Bible wants to constantly remind us what God has done in the past in delivering them from Egypt, what He has promised for the future here, the promised land that He swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now, here in verses 6, here in verse chapter 6, verses 10 through 12, He emphasizes that they are about to experience blessings They are about to experience blessings that are beyond what they've known and they're things that they did not provide. Things that they did not provide. And he begins this list in verse 10 that says, You will have splendid cities which you did not build. Israel did not burn every city after they conquered it in the book of Joshua. They specifically said to have burned Jericho, Ai, and Hazor. But they didn't burn every city. They left those cities. And they were going to have splendid cities which they did not build. They're going to have houses full of all good things food and other blessings that they did not feel, cisterns which were needed in that day to collect rainwater, to provide water, hewn cisterns which they did not dig. They were going to be heir to vineyards and olive trees which you did not plant. You're about to fall in to a great deal of wealth. And throughout Deuteronomy and throughout the Bible, when we have a sudden influx of wealth, prosperity, and blessings, and we are satisfied, there is the danger that we forget the source who gave it to us. We forget God who is the giver of all good things. When you have eaten and you have been satisfied, watch yourselves. Watch yourselves that you do not forget the Lord your God. Now we're going to see the same kind of warning in chapter 8 beginning with verse 10. In chapter 8 verse 10, when you have eaten and you are satisfied, you shall bless the Lord your God for the 
good land that He has given you. And then He said in verses 18 and 19, Deuteronomy 8, Otherwise you may say in your heart, My power and the strength of my hand made me this wealth. But you shall remember the Lord your God, for it is He who is giving you the power to make wealth. Otherwise He may confirm... um, he make, that he may confirm his covenant, which he swore to your fathers, as it is this day. As you experience these blessings, he says, do not forget God. One writer was emphasizing that in the book of Deuteronomy, we will often see this four-step process to apostasy. Uh, first of all, the people were rescued... From an impossible situation. They were slaves in the land of Egypt. And the Lord delivered them. They were rescued from an impossible situation. When they were rescued from an impossible situation. God then blessed them abundantly. Now this all sounds good. This all sounds good, doesn't it? God blesses them abundantly after they've been rescued from a proper, uh, from an impossible situation. Then the people are satisfied. They experience these blessings. They eat to the full. They drink plenty. They are not complaining about the lack of food and the lack of water anymore. They're satisfied. Then they forget God. We could make this an extra point. Forget God and worship other gods. Now, does that pretty much sound like Israel's history? And of course, we know, understand people, this is the Old Testament. And there's nobody like this today. We're not full and satisfied and tempted to forget God, are we? I want to tell you, if these words were written to these people who were so thrilled with hewn cisterns that they didn't dig, and cities they didn't build, and houses they didn't build, how much does it apply to us in the midst of our prosperity and our abundance? And there is the danger to be satisfied and to forget the source of all blessings and worship God. I've said this before, Lord willing, will say this again. Several years ago, we had a student uh, from Nigeria at college, and I was speaking with her one day, and she was talking about how some of her friends were Muslims, and some of her friends were Christians, and she said, as far as their area of Nigeria, this is not true everywhere throughout that region, but they got along. And I asked her, how frequently do you encounter an atheist in Nigeria? And she says, you don't encounter atheists in Nigeria. That was her experience anyway. In the poor nations of the world, they believe in God. In the richer nations where people are satisfied and have an abundance, 
If there's anybody forgetting God, and still the number of really practicing atheists in our country is small, but that's where it happens. It happens in the midst of prosperity. Now, verse, I want you to notice something between a couple of verses here. In 6 verse 12, the Bible again mentions God delivering us, God delivering Israel from slavery. He begins and ends verses 10 through 12 with with a mention of that. Do not forget the Lord who, or excuse me, he does not mention 10, he does mention verse 12. Do not forget the Lord who brought you out from the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. He mentions Slavery in 6 verse 12. In verse 13, you shall fear only the Lord your God and shall worship Him and swear by His name. Look at verse 13. Do any of you have a different word for worship Him and swear by His name, Bob? Serve Him. The word serve. And that is a better translation there. This is what I'm trying to emphasize. In both cases, these words are from the same Hebrew root. God rescued you from slavery in Egypt so that you could be His servant, be His slave. What is slavery? Is it an unbearable burden? It depends on who your master is. God rescued them from an impossible burden of slavery so they might be His servants and His slaves. And I know the world often wants to throw off service to God. To them, it is bondage. To them, it is slavery. If you throw off bondage to God, if you throw off submission to God, you're going to find out what real slavery is. Throw it off and you will find that. And you will see people addicted to all kinds of things. Now also interesting to me is another word play from verse 10 to verse 13. In verse 10, the text emphasizes God's oath. Verse 10, the Lord your God brings you into the land which He swore to your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. In verse 13, you shall fear only the Lord your God, worship Him, and swear by His name. In verse 10, we see the Lord swore. It is the Lord's oath. Because the Lord has sworn to give you the land, you must swear only by His name. Again, the same thing. This is man's oath. To swear by a God means that you believe that God is real and can punish you if you speak falsehood. When you see people take oaths in God's name, for example, you know how um, in the book of Ruth, the book of Ruth, Naomi said, depart from following me. And Ruth said, do not urge me to leave you or to turn back from following you. For where I go, there 
Where you go there, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people will be my people. Your God, my God. And where you die, there I will die and be buried. Thus may the Lord do to me. If anything but death separates me and you. That is an oath in God's name. You're saying if I'm unfaithful to this oath, may the Lord who hears these words judge me and punish me. Israel is told, you better swear only by my name. You do not take oaths in the name of other gods, knowing that they are not real. You worship me, you swear by my name, and in verse 14, you should not follow other gods, any of the gods of the people around you, for he is a jealous God, and his anger will be kindled against you and wipe you off from the face of the earth. Now, what, what did I deal with? Do you have something, you have a question there about how I said something or about something we didn't cover or, or whatever? Anything? Tony, you're looking at me, looking like you're thinking about a question. No, I got more stuff later. Okay, you got some stuff later, so okay. Um, so I'm just going to kind of overlook, Tony. Right here. Yes, yes, I, 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 I mean, they, I think people, the way I would say it, you're talking about seeing the whole process of the land produce and the land grow. Um, I can remember one time my mother uh, said we would try to have a garden in the summer and it was very rocky ground and we would spend a lot of time just picking up and throwing rocks and and one morning as it was already hot and, and uh, we were sweating profusely at like 8 in the morning and picking up rocks and throwing them. My mother made the observation uh, to see anything grow in ground like this. Teaching you there is a God. And it was kind of, it was kind of sarcasm about how rocky our soil was. But, but in a way, I do think when people are working and diligently serving, their natural inclination is to look for help in all these endeavors. People who have too much time on their hands get themselves into trouble and develop philosophies that are ultimately foolishness, as Romans 1 says. And we in America are beneficiaries of that. How many people do you think in Nigeria don't know whether they're a man or a woman? There aren't too many, if any. We get ourselves into trouble by having too much time on our hands. And that is an encouragement to us to fill up our time. With filling ourselves with this. Fill ourselves with this. You can neglect the daily newspaper. You can neglect 
a lot of things. You can delay, you can forget how the media is covering a particular event. We need to focus on God's viewpoint and God's perspective. Um, look at 16 through 19. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test as you tested him at Massa. You shall diligently keep the commandments of the Lord your God and his testimonies and his statutes which he has commanded you. You shall do what is right and good in the sight of the Lord that it may be well with you and that you may go in and possess the good land which the Lord your God uh, which which the Lord swore to your fathers by driving out all your enemies from before you as the Lord your God has spoken. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Now this statement don't put the Lord your God to the test as your fathers did at Massa. Massa is the event in Exodus chapter 17 in verses 1 through 7. And you remember in that event, the Bible tells us that the people came to Moses and they quarreled and said, give us water. Moses came to the Lord and he says, the people are about to stone me. People are about to stone me. And the text says God told Moses to take water and to hit the rock. They called the place Massa because the people tested the Lord. When we get to Deuteronomy 8, we're going to find God tested the people. And we'll see what that means. But here, God, here the people are testing God. The people are the objects of God's testing. I thought this was a very good statement. What does it mean to test God? What they did is to test God is to impose conditions on him and to make his response to the people's demand in an hour of crisis the condition of continuing to follow him. In other words, Lord, if you're among us, as they ask, in Exodus chapter 17, verse 7. If you're among us, this is what you have to do. Is it our place to dictate conditions to God? Is that our place? Is it our place to say, God, if you do this or you do that, then we'll know that you're among us. This is the God who has already sent the plagues throughout Egypt. This is the God who's already divided the Red Sea. This is the God who has already fed them with manna every day. And they're saying, God, we won't believe unless you do this. God has given abundant evidence. This also helps us when we come to the New Testament and people ask Jesus for a sign testing him. Matthew 12, verse 38. They are saying, you do this to show us that you are the Messiah. It's interesting, by the way, in that context, in Matthew 12, 38, when the people come to Jesus and they are demanding a sign, Jesus has just cast out a demon from a boy who was blind, who was unable to speak. He cast the demon out. 
the mute man is able to speak and the fact he's blind is changed and he's able to see. He's just done that and they say, this is from Beelzebul. And then they come and say, give us a sign. It's a rejection of what he's already done. You're telling God on what conditions he has to reveal himself? No, what we have to do is diligently keep his commandments, his testimonies, his statutes, as verse 17 states. Look at how many different ways verse 18 mentions the word God. It mentions, or it mentions the word good, excuse me. It mentions the word good, you do what is right and good in the sight of the Lord. If you do what is right and good in the sight of the Lord, the New American Standard says in verse 18, it will be well with you. But that's actually the Hebrew word for good. You do good in God's sight, Things will be good with you. And then in verse 18, at the end of the verse, you will possess the good land. Now also let me ask you to look, think about this. In 618, do what is good, do what's good and right in the eyes of the Lord. Now maybe you can think of a section of a book in the Bible where every man did what was right. What, Sarah? It was right in his own eyes. In his own eyes. What section of the Bible is that? Judges. Judges. And particularly Judges 17 through 21. We see that expression a repeated in a shorter or longer version at least four times in that section, Judges 17, 6, uh, 18, 1, 19, 1, and 21, 25. They did what was right in their own eyes. When people do that and live that way, chaos ensues. God says you do what is good or right and good in the sight of of the Lord. If you do that, things will go well with you. Now, that doesn't mean, as we see in the case of the book of Job, that everybody who sins has obviously done some kind of evil. But the way to blessing, the path to blessing, is doing what's good in His sight. There may be some people, and God have mercy on them, who do good and right and who suffer in spite of that. But the path of blessing is to do what is right. Then the Lord will give you the land. He will drive out his enemies before you. So, testing God. One example in Judges that comes to mind is Gideon and the fleece. How is that different? I think that shows us how patient God is trying to build faith in us. That is a legitimate question. God is patient with Gideon when he asks a question. God is patient with Mary. And she says, how can this be since I am a virgin? 
God was not as patient with the older priest, Zacharias, when he was asked, how can I know this is true? But even then, God's patience in sometimes tolerating people asking for a sign is really amazing. While we can't put God's answer on our terms, sometimes God is long-suffering even with that. Is there not a big difference, though, like with the people complaining to God and then wanting to refuse God as being over them? And David saying, I'm complaining to you, God, but he continues to seek after him. And so yeah. I think that's also the difference yeah. with Gideon yeah. that he's he's wanting to he's just wanting God, I just I need that little bit extra. Can you please work mm-hmm. with me here? He's not throwing off God, yeah. but here the people are wanting to throw off God. Yes. And I think part of it too may involve Gideon God recognizing what God what he is calling Gideon to do. He's calling Gideon to take his life in his hand and go out and fight 300 with 300 people against an army of 100,000. And God recognizes the severity of that. But but so I, I, we could go into it in more detail. I think Tony's answer is good, but um, you know that uh, helps a little, hopefully. In verses 20 through 25. This, the question says, when your son asks you, now again, this is about fathers teaching children. Uh, fathers teaching children, mothers teaching children, and in Proverbs it particularly emphasizes the role of both. When your son asks you in time to come, what do the testimonies and the statutes and the judgment mean which the Lord our God commanded you? What, what, why do we, children often ask their parents, why do we do this? Why do we live the way we live? He's preparing them for the question. And he's giving them a good answer. Now, their answer in a sense is, why do we live this way? Is because the Lord said so in verse 24. But he doesn't just say it like that. He doesn't just say the Lord said so. He starts out not emphasizing God's commandments, but God's blessings to them. Why do we do what God told us to do? Because everything we have and every blessing that we've been given is from Him. In verse 21, we were slaves to Pharaoh in Egypt and the Lord brought us out from Egypt with a mighty hand. That's at least twice in our lesson tonight. In verse 22, moreover, the Lord showed great and distressing signs and wonders before our eyes against Egypt, Pharaoh, and all his household. And he brought us out from there in order to bring us in to give us the land which he had sworn to our fathers. So in verses 21 through 23, all of this answer focuses on what the Lord has done. How the Lord is the source of every blessing. And I think that's a good pattern for us. When our children ask us, why do we live this way? Don't just emphasize God's requirements. Emphasize God's blessings. Emphasize all God has given us. In light of how He has blessed us. And all He has done for us. How could we do anything? 
But listen to him in verse 24. So the Lord commanded us to observe all these statutes to fear the Lord our God for our good always and for our survival as it is today. The Lord's directing us in a path that is good, in a path that is right. He's directing us in the proper path. In verse 25, it will be righteousness for us if you're careful to observe all this commandment before the Lord our God, just as He commanded us. So when your children ask you, why do we live this way? Why do we keep these commandments? Why do we keep these statutes? Emphasize His blessings and then say, that's the reason we keep these They are for our good. They are for our righteousness. What else do you see? What other questions do you have? Or comments? Sarah. So our present obedience is based on our past blessings and our future blessings, in a sense. Okay. That's really good. It's really good. But I would tweak it just this bit. That sounds like a good sermon. Sounds like a good sermon. Our present obedience is based on our past blessings and his future promises. I'm going to sign somebody to preach on that here. Um, I'll be good, but but I think that's a good way to phrase it, Sarah. Our our present obedience based on our past blessings. And upon his future promises. Can't we see how that applies to us? Every Sunday, we remember his past blessings. As we partake of the Lord's Supper, and we concentrate on that. And I, and I don't mean this, I don't mean what I'm about to say critically, but complimentary. Never been in a congregation that put more emphasis on that. As we remember God's past blessings, as we remember His future promises, the best is yet to come for Christians that inspires present obedience. Tony, you had your hand up. Just that uh, we hear this comment a lot of uh, the God of the Old Testament is so different from the God of the New Testament. I feel like going through Deuteronomy really explodes that. Yes, I agree with you. But I feel like this does a really good job of that because your very point that this isn't just cutting to the chase. He's God. He's the the authoritarian. And so therefore we have servant. And I think that's why people have a view of God as the authoritarian. And so therefore he's just a big meanie. But you see a different side of God here as a a father. And I think we have picked up on that several times here already. In, in the first few chapters, as a father, God is being with them. Because if you if you look at that in light of a lot of these types of things, he's continually doing those same types yeah. of things as a father would. You're just like, any dad would act like that. Any dad would say those kind of things. You know? And so you see yeah. a lot of love and compassion yeah. for his people here that um, love isn't mentioned a whole lot yeah. in these first five yeah. books. Yeah, not not like like you can make a sermon out of love from First John, yes. right? That of how many times it's mentioned there. It's not mentioned a whole lot in these first five books, but you continue to see 
that it just expounded over and over and over and that's what it's so beautiful about like this passage here that God God is just gushing over his people yeah and that's a good way he's he's compelling he's not saying he's not bringing the hammer down and saying you have to do it because of, like you said I said so the authoritarian move yeah the, a tyrannical move yeah but more as a compulsion or response to because I have loved you would you not also do this to obey me but also for your own good yes absolutely absolutely I, I do not I know there have been references to God blessing those who love him and keep his commandments I believe the first requirement of God's people to love God is in Deuteronomy 6 5 I don't think you find it in Genesis through Numbers and uh, the Bible all, is all built on, Genesis through Numbers is built upon God's love for his people. But generally that love, word love is not used, like you're stating. It was used in 437 of Deuteronomy. It will be used in 7, in verses 7 and 8. So you're right, it's not used. But you think about authority. We think about authority. Our, our country in the past has been very, was very skittish of kings. Because kings in one person were judge and jury, they were all three branches of government, and there was no right of appeal. And there was good reason from a standpoint of man to avoid that. Is a king, though, a good thing or bad thing? If your king is Manasseh, it's a disaster. If your king is God, where will you get one more gracious and more compassionate and more fatherly than him? And the Bible emphasizes both an authority that flows out of his love, out of his love. And because he does love us, he directs us in ways that are right and good. Now, there's not a parent in this room who has not had to tell their child to avoid something that they thought was for their good or to do something that was difficult that they knew would be for the child's good later. We we don't always understand that as children, as parents, we may see something clearly. They're going to have to learn this now. They're going to have to face this now. And this is for their good. Uh, But it doesn't mean it's easy at the time. Some things God tells us are like that. And we may not grasp it. But it is for our good. Our very existence. Let's see if we can make a little dent in seven. I want you to again notice, as we start reading the first couple of verses of 7, how frequently God's activity is highlighted. In verses 1 and 2, When the Lord your God shall bring you into the land where you are entering to possess, to possess it, and you shall clear away many nations before you, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Seven nations greater and stronger than you. 
Then the Lord your God shall deliver them before you, and you shall defeat them. You shall utterly destroy them. You shall make no covenant with them, and show no favor to them. The Lord, verse 1, the Lord shall bring you into the land to possess it. He mentions seven nations there. Sometimes as many as ten are mentioned. Generally a shorter number are mentioned. But here he describes these nations as being nations that are stronger and mightier than you are. Stronger and mightier than you are. When your coach and your team is outmanned, you don't tell them in the pregame speech, there is no way we're going to win this game. You don't tell them that. Even if you have a coach, believe that. You don't tell them that. God continues to highlight that they are stronger and mightier than you are. In chapter 9, verse 1, Hear, O Israel, you are crossing over the Jordan today to dispossess nations greater and mightier than you and great cities which are fortified to heaven. And we can multiply that many times over. Why does God keep telling them that? That they will remember when they win the victory that it is not by their power, but by His power. I thought you were asking a question. Okay, okay, thank you. Thank you. So I appreciate your amen there. But but stronger and my God is emphasizing this is from Him. Remember when you face obstacles in your life that are too big for you and you're overwhelmed by them and then you you face them and somehow it works out well. Sometimes you think, man, I'm something. No, you're not something. God's power to deliver is amazing. God's power to rescue. And it says, you will utterly defeat them he emphasizes in 7-2, you are to make no covenant with them. Make no covenant with them. In 7 and verse 3, you shall not intermarry with them. Recently, I was in a conversation. I was, it was uh, another preacher that I was in college with, and uh, we were talking to a group of young people who were planning to preach and thinking about preaching. And he made the comment that if you plan to preach, there is nothing, there's no decision you're going to make that's going to have much impact. On your ministry, your teaching and preaching as to you marry. I agree with that. And I said, I think we can go a step further. If you want to be a faithful Christian, there's no decision you can make. Outside of just the determination to serve God, that's going to have as much impact on that as to who you marry. God says, If you marry them, in verse 4, they shall turn your sons away 
from following me to serve other gods. Now that word serve in verse 4 is our same word serve back in chapter uh, 6 verse 12 and 6 verse 13. You will serve their gods and the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you. Now can you think, now this is a softball question if there ever was one. Can you think of someone in the Old Testament who married women who did not share his faith and they turned his heart away. Who? Solomon. Solomon in 1 Kings chapter 11 in verses 1 through 13. There is a point made about this in the days of Nehemiah when the people are intermarrying. And he says there in the days of Nehemiah, if it happened to the wisest man on earth, it can happen to you. It can happen to you. They'll turn your heart away. And what they were told to do, to make no covenant with them, to show no favor to them, not to intermarry with them, but to tear down their altars, to smash your sacred pillars, hew down their asherim, burn their graven images. I know that treatment sounds harsh. By the way, do you recognize here that there is a statement that not necessarily, even though they're told to utterly destroy them, they're not necessarily going to kill every one of them. If they killed every one of them, there would be no one left with whom to make a covenant and no one left with whom to intermarry. But you utterly destroy them. I want you to understand, I know those words are harsh, and I want you to know this. This is not God's instructions for how His people are to deal with foreigners for all time. This was a limited instruction for a specific time God told Abraham in Genesis 15, 16, I'm not going to leave you into the land of Canaan yet because the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet full. Do you know that God could have said those words to Abraham about 600 years before Moses says these words? God is patient. God is long-suffering. And only when their iniquity is filled are they completely destroyed. Bob? Yes, that's right. This is a judgment of God. Yes, very good point. Not to destroy the, the Ammonites, the Edomites, the Moabites. And those people will be thorns in their side in the Old Testament. But God said, don't destroy them. Very good. Thank you, guys. We'll try to pick up with 7-6, Lord willing, on Sunday morning. Um, We've already decided to extend um, this Deuteronomy class for a couple of quarters. No, we haven't, but but, uh, we need to probably. Thank you.